Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery, BTR.org. I'm Anne. I'm sure you remember what it was like when you were searching for help, maybe for your husband, hoping to find the right program or therapist. That's why I started podcasting. I supported my husband through seven years of pornography addiction recovery, and not one therapist during that time told me I was experiencing emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion. I didn't want any other woman on the planet to be in the dark. If you're like the majority of my listeners, you're experiencing the type of abuse that's invisible and difficult to wrap your head around. Your husband is using porn or having affairs or lying to you, and you're getting the same bad advice about how to improve communication or your relationship. If you need support from women who totally understand, check out our daily group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a session today. One simple anonymous way to help spread the word is to click, follow, or subscribe to the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. While you're there, every five-star rating helps make this podcast more visible and will help save other women from getting the wrong kind of help, like a couple program that will make this type of abuse worse. For those of you who follow or subscribe to this podcast, thank you so much. Your support means so much to me. I have Nora Taylor back on today's episode. Last week, I sometimes called her Nora and sometimes Taylor. It's an alias we're using to protect her. But if you didn't hear that intro to her story last week, go listen there first and then join us here today. In this episode, you'll hear the acronym CSAM, which stands for Child Sex Abuse Material. Some people call this Child Pornography. We call it child sexual abuse material here because that is what it is. So when you hear that, see Sam, you'll know what we're talking about. We're just going to jump right in. This is such an interesting story because so many women experience these same exact things. They experience the lack of empathy, the lack of him caring about their feelings, you know, all of that stuff. So this is really, really interesting. And I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that this happened to you and I was... It sounds like a nightmare. Let's talk about the rest of the story. What happened after you found this child sexual abuse material? So how did your experiences with DV and counseling professionals, law enforcement, the courts, how did that exacerbate your trauma? In so many ways. It actually, whenever I think of this now that I've been listening to your podcast, I think of one episode you did, and I've listened to them out of sequence, so I don't know how long ago it was, but it was when you were so raw and honest and vulnerable with the listening audience about having been in court and having gotten nothing of what you wanted and needed for you and your kids in terms of custody. I don't know if you remember this or not, but... Mm -hmm. That was actually pretty recent. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry for you because I... That feeling came right to the surface for me again. I don't think I've cried so hard as I have in family courts because people have not recognized this and it's actually an identified thing. It's not a diagnosable concern for the non-spectrum partners in a relationship, but it goes by different names. Cassandra phenomenon, which is named from the Greek goddess who was cursed with this ability to tell the future and no one would believe. It goes by ongoing traumatic relationship syndrome or affective deprivation disorder, those names as well. But it's this idea of describing these experiences and not being believed by friends, family, professionals. And I've faced it over and over again. 
first time we were in family court, he agreed to a psych evaluation then, even before the autism diagnosis, and the judge wouldn't allow it. She says it's overdone in her courtroom. She wasn't going to allow it. He was arrested a year later. So my ex got his own therapist, wonderful, but he, you know, through work, and he told them, I don't need support for any PTSD. I need this because my, my wife is so awful to me. And that therapist even called me in to talk to me, didn't believe me that autism was an issue. He dismissed me. He was saying in court later that he was blocking my emails. You know, he invited me in and then didn't want to hear from me. I think, again, he was looking for me to be the, the problem. There's something wrong with her. Yeah. At the time, were you saying autism was an issue or were you saying abuse was an issue? I think that's an interesting thing because even though he was autistic, the result to you was still emotional abuse. Do you know what I'm saying? That's so interesting. I hadn't thought of this in this way before, but I think in the timeline of events, I hadn't identified it as abuse. I was just trying to give him a, it's what everybody views as a label, but I wanted an answer or a reason. So I started with personality disorder. I said, can you look into this? I think this therapist, I want to help him. I want our family back together. This wasn't right. you know, to label him. And, and it wasn't like to like catch him or something. It was to solve a problem. Right. And I didn't identify it as that. It's this man is leaving the family, like out of nowhere, from my point of view at that point, that's a problem. And he's blaming me for everything that I'm not doing. I didn't see it as abuse, but I saw him as being very confused. I mean, PTSD could be an element of what goes on with him. I mean, he was in law enforcement for a long time. He was in the military for a long time. He served overseas. He was teased as a child, you know, that, that could contribute. But yeah, that's a, that's a good question. No, there was no discussion of that. And, and I wasn't surprised for that to be the case because this was a therapist chosen by law enforcement. And that's another bullet on my list of, you know, people who weren't safe people to go to because they exacerbated the problem. He was making, he made at least one false allegation of physical abuse by me to his department. You had physically abused him was the allegation? Yes. And this okay. was later down the road, but it was still um, a matter of, well, this is a department I can't go to because they're going to back him up. And this is before they, you know, his, his arrest clearly. So they didn't know that he was guilty. But even when he was arrested, the people in his department went to the FBI agent and they said, oh, well, you know, of course she set him up, right? I mean, he didn't do this. And the FBI agent said, go read the filing documents. <laughs> and then I think some of them did believe, but they weren't, they weren't a resource for me. You know, even, I even had one domestic violence counselor because I've been to several of, of the centers in my various towns. And one said, oh, well, it's very nuanced because I went to them at one point thinking, am I the abuser? Is this all my fault? Did I do something wrong? Oh, it can be very nuanced because she didn't hear anything that I said that made her say, oh, yes, he's abusive. So there I was in this fog of self-doubt already. And that set me back. Uh, yeah. So the, the reason why I keep coming back to this is because this is something that I think it's super important for every single listener of this podcast. And I say it repeatedly, but I just want it to hit home for everyone. It does not matter what the cause is of the abuse. If it's abusive to you, it's abusive, right? 
So it doesn't matter if it's a brain lesion or if, if his particular type of autism and the way that he deals with it is abusive to you. Not saying that autistic people are abusive in general, right? But just saying the way he treated you was abusive. So I think that like that's really hard for women to figure out because they're always thinking if they can figure out why he's abusive or why he's doing these behaviors that are harmful to their family or that hurt her. They might not use the word abuse. But then they think, okay, then we can solve it. Not realizing that even when you do find the perhaps cause trauma in their childhood, you know, all kinds of other things, that there are autistic people who are not abusive. They have learned to interact in appropriate ways. They're kind, even if they don't quite understand, you know, right? There are people who have really traumatic childhoods who are not abusive. So the the abuse is the thing that is affecting us. That's the thing that we need to focus on is how do we get to safety from abuse? And I think it's interesting that as you were trying to get help and as you were trying to like explain what had happened to people at the time, you didn't have the words and at the time you hadn't processed it. And so the thing that you were talking about the most, which is the most appropriate thing for you to talk about at the time was his autism, right? He's autistic. So we've got these problems. And even then with a diagnosis, they didn't believe you. Yes. And thank you for saying that, because that is, I mean, if there's one take home, you know, let's say six years out from the major crisis is that I have come to understand that it's abuse and the, the autism is not enough to, to set aside his behaviors and certainly getting to safety for me and my boys has been the journey. I amplify that message that it's, it's, it's abuse and you need to take care of you and your children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, regardless of the cause, it breaks our heart because it could be something that is completely not their fault. You know, someone could be a super healthy, amazing person and get like a head injury, for example, right? And their head injury uh, alters their personality or whatever and causes them to be abusive and you are unsafe. And that's a super sad situation. So in that case, you know, you don't have to like say they're an evil, wicked person or anything like that, you can with compassion look at them and say, this is such an unfortunate situation that they had this head injury and then it caused them to be abusive. But that doesn't mean that it's okay that I get abused, right? So I want to reiterate that over and over and over again, that you can have compassion for people who perhaps it's not their fault for some reason, or maybe through no choice of their own, you know? But that doesn't mean that it's not affecting you negatively. And it doesn't mean that it's okay that you're just a victim of abuse. If you're being harmed, it's okay to get to safety regardless of the cause. Real quick before a response, there are a lot of so-called betrayal trauma therapists or coaches or groups out there, but they don't approach pornography use or infidelity as an abuse issue. Or they try to quote unquote treat both the abuser and the victim in the same setting, which is unethical. So if you hear something in this episode you relate to, check out the group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a group session today. Now back to our conversation. As you were trying to explain the situation, the time using the context of autism, did you find that the more you tried to get help and the more you tried to explain what was happening, that the more they didn't believe you? And was that a part of the trauma? It became less about that and more about the fact that um, the courts just don't have a space for listening to 
any of the categories you, you discussed in your podcast, you know, whether it is autism, whether it's a personality disorder, they're so focused on, well, this must be uh, two parties who are contributing equally to a problematic dynamic, and they're both acting childish or um, irresponsibly. And we're just going to shut this down because the best thing for children, except for in extreme circumstances that we can't identify here, is for them to have access to both parents. So it was less of an issue for me because of just the timing, because I, I hadn't pursued in the family courts uh, the revised visitation enough post diagnosis and before he was ultimately arrested to have tested this a lot. But I will say that it stepping back a little bit, my support group, this is a challenge we discuss all the time that is it better to bring forward the autism diagnosis or should we shut it down and, and not mention it because autism for all the reasons you've pointed out through this podcast, that because autism doesn't make people abusive, then it also doesn't automatically make people bad parents. So we can't go into the courtroom and say he has autism, so he can't have custody. It has to be about the behaviors and the traits. And I'm not sure I ever got that bulleted list together for myself of really what is going on here that makes him unsafe because it was so nebulous. And that is the reason why I'm not believed. Because if I say, you know, he called me up and had custody of the kids and he hadn't fed them dinner at eight o'clock. They were all under the age of seven. People are like, well, you know, like that's not child abuse to not feed them at, until eight o'clock at night. But I'm watching it and I'm saying, here's a person who doesn't have the ability to think flexibly enough. He had to go out to the grocery store because he had a missing ingredient for a recipe he's making for a bunch of children. He should have just fed them. And that sort of inflexibility, it will strike dozens of parenting decisions across a day or a visitation. But it's so difficult to make that list and make that case. You have to document for a very long time. This is kind of a roundabout way of addressing your question, but I just kind of felt stuck at the how do I demonstrate that this is problematic behavior, regardless of its label. And then I got the, the deus ex machina situation of, well, he's been lifted out of here. He's clearly unsafe because he's, he's looking at CSAM. But I have colleagues whose, whose partners don't do that. And they're just as unsafe in other ways. So he was never fully explored uh, to this degree. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people said, oh, your ex got a, a arrested for abuse, for example. So I have a guilty verdict with a 14-month probation and a protective order. And the courts didn't see that as a reason for to be dangerous around children either. And it's so interesting when you try to define these sort of psychological and emotional abusive things, or they're like, oh, well, you know, he just isn't into trombone. You know, when I say he, he will not support my son in his trombone, you know, or something like that. This is just really like things that, that when you're in it, you know how abusive it is. But from the outside, they just think, oh, people parent differently. There are different styles, you know, that sort of thing. So it's also interesting that there's no abuse diagnosis, right? There's no, uh, there's no space for that. Even though the courts say that there is, it's crazy making for those of us who have tried to get our kids to safety. It's physical abuse, sexual abuse. They will see that. 
I will, I will say, you know, I went and read the entire transcript three years out. I testified and then I promptly left the courtroom never to return because I didn't want to hear it. But I felt like I was ready to read it and ready to understand what I'm up against when he's released. And in, at a sentencing hearing, the judge, the federal court judge who sat there and heard all his testimony and all the lies he told, and I mean, that's all explicitly on record. You perjured yourself. You blamed your ex-wife. You are at fault and you will not admit it. In the next breath, he said, I released this hold because during his house arrest period, he was not to go near me or the children. He released that hold and said, you can have unsupervised visitation with your children if the family courts allow it. And the family courts don't understand emotional and psychological abuse. They don't understand these issues of sexual coercion, sexual safety, unless unless they're in pretty much in prison or there's some kind of severe bruise. Right. And it, it wasn't enough that my ex was, I mean, the content he was watching, I, you know, will not get graphic, but incest was a theme in his content. So how would you be able to say that my children are safe? I had a guardian ad litem, like, look over it when I was saying he was unsafe and say, I don't understand why she's saying her ex is unsafe. He seems very safe to me. <laughs> like, I had a guardian yeah. ad litem when, I, when he looked at me two weeks before I gave birth to our third child and said, I want nothing to do with this baby. And I told her that. She said, well, he wants to be a parent now, so we need to let him. <laughs> I know. It's so crazy. Oh, it's 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 not funny. Sorry. I had a, a one star review the other day on the podcast because I laughed on the podcast when someone said something like what you just said instead of like being horrified, which, by the way, I am horrified. But um, I thought when you've been through this, there's this sort of dark sense of humor that we sort of adopt as a coping mechanism especially when we're in support groups and, and interacting with other victims, we sort of adopt things that maybe people who haven't been through it would not laugh about. So I just want to throw that out there that I am horrified, but also it is like, if this happens to us again and again and again, at some point it just becomes sort of ridiculous, right? That people are not believing us. Let's talk about friends and family apart from professionals, right? Apart from counseling professionals in the court. How did they see this? Did they believe and support you? Well, I mean, on the side of, of my friends, you, you probably know this and your listeners probably know this, that you learn who your true friends are and you learn who your tough friends are because it's not easy stuff to process. And for the people who can hang with you and listen to it, you know, you know, they're your people. My friends group, I have some that are in my longstanding friends, uh, but a lot of my, my tribe now are newer people who came in when I was in the midst of the story or post the story and were okay with me telling it and retelling it and visiting it as I need to. My family, not, not as much. I think there are probably, we could point to a lot of the psychology of why I chose this partner. And, you know, you look to your early family history my ex's family, I suspect that they knew about the behavior because it did not, it did not start, you know, during my marriage. It started, I would suspect in his tween or teen years, just knowing some of the things that I know. And I think they've been covering for him. They're a family with some, some social status and quite a bit of money because they've, they've funded all of his, his lawsuits in the family court and all of his his federal trial and an appeal and whatever legal steps he's taking right now, not entirely clear. They supported him. And in fact, his parents 
my belief to be on the spectrum too. They petitioned me for visitation of the kids. They were already taking steps before he was even arrested. So to me that said, they knew he was, it was only a matter of time. They knew I had his computer and it was only a matter of time that before I figured out what was on it and before something happened. So they pursued visitation rights, got them. And the opening questions when I was cross-examined at his federal trial were about how I was keeping the grandchildren from their grandparents because the whole narrative for him was that I was a vindictive spouse who just wanted the kids and the money and to make his life miserable. So this was at the federal trial for his child sex abuse material case. They brought up that you were withholding the kids from the grandparents because you were vindictive in, in order to sort of blame you and say that you, is, it, is, is he still doing that you set him up? Yes. I mean, he hasn't actually said those words. He sends bi-monthly letters to my children and, you know, still says, you know, I'm pursuing this aspect of my case again. It's going back to the courts and they're looking at it and they pass the first step, which is important because it shows that I'm telling the truth. And so his defense, it was this, the way I read it, and this is me trying to interpret his just autistic brain when I do not have one, is that it just, it's plausible deniability. Well, you can't prove beyond a doubt that it was me because it could have been her because she knew this password or he'd make up lies just to make it, it seem as if I was, I could be responsible. So he keeps insisting that they have not proven that I did not know it was there, that I didn't put it there, that because I had a shared computer and we shared passwords, it could be me. So he has not let go of that now. It puts my children in this position and, you know, we can talk about my children, it's, yeah, I'm laughing now. Uh, now I'm in this laughable <laughs> space, but my kids are in this, and this is not, not funny, unfortunately, that they're in this position that, you know, most divorce situations, I think you can say, you know, kids don't have to take sides. They can love their parents equally. And there isn't, you don't have to bring them into this, but because he did this and he blames me and it's on public record as is his infidelity, he's putting my kids in the position of having to believe one or the other of us. Cause it's either or. Oh, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. So he's currently in prison. How long will he be in prison? Another two and a half years, roughly a little bit more than that. And I imagine that for the moment you're like, okay, we have a little break, but you're, you have anxiety and worry about him getting out. Exactly. And I, and I thank you for, validating that. And I think that's where the, the friends network breaks down a little bit. Why do you keep worrying about this? Why don't you just live your life? Just be and worry about that later. And you, you can't predict the future and so many things. And I don't live in that moment every single day of my life, but I have to be prepared for it because there's no doubt. I mean, this is his entire life right now is, you know, standing by his, his truth that he's innocent and, you know, planning to come out and, you know, be super dad. Oh, it is, it is really, really rough. Um, especially with your kids being not grown up, right. That they're still in this young stage. Well, how old are your youngest now? He just turned six. Yeah. yeah. It's really, really hard. 
So in addition to them having to pick sides, in addition to your justifiable concern and worry about him when he gets out of prison, how has his behavior affected your children in other ways? There are a couple different ways. He, he sends letters every other week. The court ordered that he'd be allowed to do that, and I worked that out with a therapist for the boys so that it would be a way they could process it. But his, his letters are so out of a fantasy world that it's also very confusing for them. He talks about, you know, going to the beach and how he has neighbors and he had, you know, this special meal for dinner and all these wonderful things that are happening. It's a sanitized version of reality. That's confusing for them because they say, well, does he not know that we know where he is? Um, so it's, it's threatening to pull them into his way of being that's not healthy. So we, we have to work against that when, when we're living as a family or, or working with their support system. And then unfortunately, it's perhaps forever going to be an unknown whether he actually harmed them in any way. They were fairly young and I've had dealings with Child Protective Services who have investigated this. And it's, so my kids have been put through that too. I will say a, a positive is that we've moved a couple times since this all happened. So we no longer live in the town where this took place. And they were young enough that their friends weren't talking about it at great length. So there's a chance that they can keep it private in their, their school and friend circles if they so choose. So that's, that's a positive. We're going to pause the conversation here and pick it back up next week. So please stay tuned for the end of Nora's story. If this podcast is helpful to you, please help us reach other women by following or subscribing and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you for helping other women find us. If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama, Husband Drama, please circle back and give it a five-star rating. A lot of women are searching for books about betrayal trauma on Amazon and rating Trauma Mama will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. Your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on support the BTR podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there.